Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 7 Investing Podcast. Here at 7 Investing, we offer our seven best ideas in the stock market every month. We also offer educational content such as this podcast. We'll bring in the rest of the team later for today's podcast, but I'd first like to introduce the newest member to our 7 Investing team. Max Chatsko has just joined 7 Investing as our latest lead advisor. Wanted to spend the first part of this podcast to introduce him. Max, we're excited to be working with you. Welcome to 7 Investing. Thanks, man. I'm pretty pumped to be here, too. Max, can you start this off just by talking a little bit about your background uh, as an investor, kind of the style that you have when you look up and you, when you think about companies? Yeah, so I kind of do a, more of a bottom-up approach. I think that's just from my background with uh, engineering and going too far into the weeds sometimes. But uh, I you know, try to really understand uh, technology trends and then you know, technology platforms. And I find that tends to be a better approach for some of these, you know, the topics that I cover anyway, in terms of uh, in biopharmaceuticals or energy storage. Because um, it's really easy for companies to, you know, put a big, nice investor presentation together. And if you don't know any better, you, yeah, it sounds great. I don't know. There's a trillion dollar market opportunity in 10 years, you know, but um, some of these just maybe aren't on the best footing from a technical standpoint. So uh and there's not a lot of really good information out there on the internet for investors, unfortunately, I think. Um, a lot of it's too, like, top level, doesn't really say a lot, doesn't really, like, add a whole lot of value to the conversation. So I feel like that's where my approach comes in, just trying to help people understand these topics and, uh, you know, have a higher chance of success and picking the winners from the, uh, you know, people who are just kind of posing around some technological trend and have no shot. <laughs> sure, absolutely. And so the drug makers, you know, this is an industry that's tough for investors to understand because it's so binary, right? You either pass trials or you don't. We kind of get some updates and some data of how clinical trials are going when new drugs are in development. But I know that you've done a lot of work actually kind of looking at the technologies, seeing what's going on out there as opposed to just kind of trying to make sense of the events out there. Uh, and Max, one of the, the fields that, that you refer to when you describe uh, life sciences is living technologies. Can you explain to me what living technologies is and how you look at that? Yeah, so I started using the term living technologies recently as a more encompassing term uh, to describe biology-based technologies, right? So there's, there's some other terms that get thrown around. Um, you know, people say biotech. And a lot of times people, we kind of misuse that, right? We use it interchangeably with the word biopharma, but that's not really quite accurate, right? So like biotech's up here and then biopharma is a piece of that, but so is industrial biotech, which has nothing to do with drug development. And there's agricultural biotech. We're going to have environmental biotech and biotech animals and all kinds of other subcategories of biotech. So the two words aren't interchangeable. But even, you know, saying biotech kind of implies genetic engineering and not everything that's uh, biology based is genetically engineered, right? Um, I mean, you have, uh, you know, I mean, wastewater treatment facilities or even just building marshlands. I mean, that's biology based and that provides a tremendous amount of value for, you know, civilization. Um, or there's even something called biochar. Did you ever hear that, Simon? I have not. Actually, I have not heard that. So yeah, biochar, it's basically charcoal, but it's from biomass, right? So you create it by burning biomass 
in the absence of oxygen. But it stores a lot of carbon and it can be added to soils, like agricultural soils, to uh, improve soil health, make plants healthier. So just adding biochar, if we could get that industry up and going, uh, it's a great way to sequester carbon. We could greatly reduce the volume of fertilizers or insecticides that we apply to plants. And it's pretty low-hanging fruit. We're just using something called pyrolysis. That's burning uh, in the absence of oxygen. Um, and no one really ever talks about it. It's not really uh, all over the internet or anything. Um, and it's obviously not genetically engineered, right? But it's one of those like low-hanging fruit opportunities that, especially now with, you know, we're trying to address climate change. I mean, it's, it's up there with like renewable energy in terms of uh, the impact it could have. So, you know, I, I encompass that into living technologies uh, just to be as, as, you know, encompassing as possible because, um, you know, it's like, what's the, what's the, what's, what really matters? You know, to me, it's that we're using biology. So. Yeah. And so much of that work initially was done for um, environmentally friendly reasons, right? We wanted to have Coke bottles that would decompose, things like that. But you've mentioned that this field is a lot bigger than that. It could be saving industrial corporations billions of dollars. It could be helping uh, therapeutics, you know, and medical applications for that. I mean, anything bio-based has a really uh, trillion dollar <laughs> market addressable potential out there, right? Yeah. I mean, it ties into everything. Um, you know, we're going to see a, an onslaught, I think, in the next decade of consumer products that are based on biology. I mean, look at even like uh, Beyond Meat and Possible Foods. There's a lot of, you know, animal-free protein companies out there. Um, and that's taken off. People really, you know, are craving that stuff. Um, but we'll see things even enter into the home. Maybe the new appliances that we can't even imagine today. Um, you know, and certainly, you know, look at what uh, Austin's into the space economy. I mean, it's tough to go to space if you can't grow food or produce oxygen or process waste or so we're going to need biology on you know lunar base or out in, in space or in mars or something so um you know it's it's infinitely uh you know uh, addressable markets here so yeah it's really neat max i kind of tend to personally think of you as kind of our life sciences healthcare advisor you know we've got uh, a bunch of different perspectives on this team Matt tends to look more at digital payments. You know, Steve's looking at AI. Austin's looking at a lot of cloud stuff. Now space economy lately. I, I tend to think of you as our go-to guy for healthcare. What do you think some of the most interesting things taking place in healthcare are right now? Well, that's one of the reasons I like that this team's awesome. I mean, you have we have people who are just so competent in all these different areas. I mean, we have a pretty well-rounded team. So uh, that's one of the reasons I'm pretty excited to join. As far as things I'm looking at in healthcare, uh, Specifically, just in drug development, I mean, I think there's a lot of activity and a lot of buzz, and I think it's actually, um, uh, you know, legit is uh, in, in cell therapies and also in genetic medicines. So, um, you know, maybe, what, five years ago, we had the first CAR-T therapy approved for use as a drug. So, I mean, that was good. That was kind of a, a pretty big step change in how we treated certain diseases. I think it was um, like pediatric lymphoma or some kind of cancer right um but you know now we have lots of different type cell types that are being developed um we still have you know car t and t cells but we have you know natural killer cells we have uh something called tils which are tumor infiltrating lymphocytes um we have a couple other ones so it's 
and these all have different advantages and disadvantages. Um, I mean, with, so it's, we're kind of like expanding our toolbox, so to speak, you know, in terms of, Hey, how can this treat this cancer? What can we do here? Can we combine the two? Can we combine something with CAR T? Um, you know, can we dose these things more than once? Cause I think the first gen CAR T can only dose one time. Uh, so you're just kind of left with whatever results you got from that. But, um, there's different, uh, ways of growing cell therapies now, which are, you know, we have allogeneic cell therapies. So if we, you know, administer those to a patient, that patient's body wouldn't necessarily reject it as a foreign substance. So it could have a longer duration of response or we could dose them more than once. Um, that's one of the big advantages of natural killer cells, for instance. Um, you know, we can dose them more than once. They don't really have a, a risk of cytokine release syndrome, which is one of the, the uh, you know, more uh, deadly uh, side effects of the first gen CAR-T. Um, not a lot of maybe any neurotoxicity. Um, so, I mean, if you could have all the advantages of, you know, cell therapies and dose them as many times as you needed and cure or treat diseases and, you know, just keep giving it to patients. So their cancer state of remission as long as possible. I mean, you know, that's pretty exciting. That's a, that's a huge development. So, um, so that's something I like to watch. And then genetic medicines, again, I go with the broad term, Simon. So, uh, genetic medicines is, uh, you know, it encompasses, RNA interference drugs or gene therapies or gene editing, which includes CRISPR, but CRISPR is not the only gene editing out there. Um, you know, so, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty exciting field if we can treat or cure diseases, you know, and, and address the, uh, the pathology of diseases as far upstream as possible in the body, you know, right to the DNA. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's huge potential there. Yeah, and I think a lot of that that I really like, Max, is that so much of that is still so early, right? This is still, even if you're lucky, phase one trials for so much of that, but it's still, it's still R&D phase for so much of this. And I really respect the perspective that you have on, on analyzing that, knowing those technologies, knowing what's really going on fundamentally with the science. Um, I think you really bring a lot to the team. Uh, you also mentioned renewable energy. Yeah, we were... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. I was just saying, yeah, we were talking about the other day. I mean, there's companies that IPO and they have no clinical trials yet, which is kind of interesting, but uh, maybe there's just an appetite for it. Or, I mean, you're getting a lot of money to get these things through trial. So maybe it's a good move in terms of, uh, you know, capitalizing the business. But yeah, I mean, so early in this stuff. Yeah, and $3.6 trillion a year that U.S. spends on healthcare. I mean, 17% of our GDP, there's definitely some opportunities to do that more efficiently. Uh, renewable energy, I'd mentioned earlier too, that you kind of take a look at some uh, developments that are going on in renewables. What's got your, what has your attention in renewable energy right now? So for a lot of that, I've gone kind of macro in terms of um, just looking at the power mix from on a, like a national level. Um, so I've been really into, you know, the trends in onshore wind and utility scale solar. And, you know, I mean, there's a lot of doom and gloom discussions out there on climate change. Um, and, you know, that's warranted. But I think as well, there's not enough discussion of, you know, how rapid we are really making progress. Um, I mean, the U.S. has cut more emissions than any other country since peak emissions in 2005 or 6. Um, and right now, today, I mean, we have uh, about 10% of our total electricity comes from onshore wind and utility-scale solar. But if you look at, you know... Um, 
power generators and electric utilities, they have to plan out changes to their, their power mix years in advance, right? It's a heavily regulated field. So if you kind of take a sneak peek at uh, some of these applications, I mean, almost all of the power being added is going to be wind and solar. You know, there's some natural gas. I mean, it's obviously very regional. Uh, you know, renewable energy is dictated by geography. But, um, you know, the cost of wind and solar, um, it was Next Area Energy Resources had this estimate. Uh, so Next Area Energy is uh, a holding company. You know, they, they have two uh, electric utilities in Florida, but then they own Next Area Energy Resources. So that's their power generation subsidiary. So they go and build, um, you know, power assets all across the country. They'll operate them for electric utilities in those regions. They'll sell them uh, to the companies that want to own them outright. Or partner with them to own a piece of it. Um, so they have like just the best insight into uh, these trends, you know, and right now they actually generate more electricity from the wind and sun than any other company on the planet, right? Um, I think if they were a country, they would be like seventh or eighth in terms of installed wind capacity. So, <laughs> wow. so when they say something, it, you know, it has a, a good degree of credibility to it. Um, but they estimate that around 2023, 2024, I'm not sure if that got pushed back with the pandemic or anything, but uh, they said wind's gonna wind and solar, even if you add energy storage, will be the lowest cost source of electricity on average. So I think there's you know not a lot of a discussion, but we're almost at this inflection point. If we're not already there, um, you know, so by the back half of this decade, we're just going to be adding you know gigawatts and gigawatts and gigawatts of renewable energy. So um, you know, Next Air Energy actually publishes this this pie chart and it's not from them i think it's from the national renewable energy lab but it says that by 2030 so 10 years from now um the u.s could be generating 40 percent of its total electricity from onshore wind and utility scale solar so up from 10 percent today to 40 percent uh 10 years later so like that's not in any projections from like the Energy Information Administration or Bloomberg New Energy Finance. So these are the guys building it and they're way more optimistic than anything else out there. So, uh, I mean, it's kind of supported if you look at the market and trends and even electricity data. I mean, the EIA has been woefully inaccurate even in sh predicting this stuff short term and how quickly it's moving. So, um, so yeah, I mean, and, and you know, People might scoff at the idea it's only 40%, but uh, in terms of how a national power grid moves, like how many years it takes to overhaul it, um, I think I saw a stat it, from like 5% of the power mix up to 50%. So by the time an energy source hits 5%, it takes about 50 years to then get to 50%, right? This has been played out for petroleum, for coal, for natural gas. And then here you have modern renewables, which is, you know, wind and solar. And they're going to go from 5% somewhere in the mid 2010s to 40% just 15 years later. So, I mean, this stuff's moving at light speed. And I know there's a lot of people that want to move much faster, but uh, I think, you know, just be patient, man. It's moving. It's, it's, uh, so there's a lot of good trends, good opportunities there. Um, I think, too, just with the pandemic, it's interesting. Next era energy's market valuation is now above some of the oil super majors. So uh, I think that's a that's an interesting trend. We're gonna start to see um, electric utilities, you know, be
become the, the, the energy suppliers, obviously, right? I mean, you're supplying your home, your business, data centers, industrial facilities, and increasingly they're going to be powering transportation. So um, they're already very important parts of modern life going to be even more so in the next, you know, 10 years or so. So um, I think that's a very interesting trend to watch for investors. I think so too, Max. You, you've got some interesting trends you mentioned there between CAR-T and CRISPR and living technologies and renewable energy. Uh, your first recommendation for Seven Investing will be published on uh, September 1st, you know, coming up just in a couple of days here. We're really excited to publish that for all of our subscribers to see. But just generally, how, how would you describe your investing recommendation style? Are there types of investments or companies you tend to look for? Are you going early stage R&D? Are you gonna balance it out with, with larger companies too? Or what should we get to expect in the recommendations that you'll be publishing with Seven Investing? Oh man, well, uh, I'll, I'll definitely be recommending some companies that uh, certainly the team hasn't really heard of too much probably true for our subscribers as well, but uh, it'll be a mix. It'll be, you know, some development stage companies that uh, I've applied my framework to that are maybe in an emerging field, but I think they're the best position to be the leaders in that, you know, five years from now or however many years. Um, some commercial stage companies that maybe are overlooked or undervalued. Um, and then in renewable energy, I mean, maybe an electric utility here or there, or, um, but uh, I definitely want to get into energy storage too. Right now, there's not a whole lot of opportunities for that, maybe outside of Tesla. But um, I think that's going to change here in the next five to 10 years. Um, so maybe some uh, crazy, super long-term battery startups. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> going to keep it interesting. Going to keep everyone on our toes, including the rest of your advisor team. Uh, right. Once once again, Max Chatsko. Yeah, Max, by the way, has a, a bachelor's in bioprocess engineering from SUNY ESF, also a master's in material science and engineering from Carnegie Mellon. Uh, Max, we're really, really excited to have you joining the team. Uh, welcome to our advisor group here with Seven Investing. Thanks, man. And uh, can't wait to get started. Yep. And for everybody that's listening, you know, just on a personal note, I, I've known Max for, I guess we've known each other for about seven or eight years now. And uh, every time I talked to him, I, I just realized he was two steps ahead of the curve on the things that he was looking for. So we are thrilled to have him on the team and start pulling some, uh, some living technologies and renewable energy ideas into our recommendations. And on that note, let's join the rest of the team for the rest of this month's Seven Investing Team podcast. Okay, and welcome back to the studio again. Here I'm joined by the rest of my Seven Investing lead advisor colleagues, Matt Cochran, Steve Symington, Austin Lieberman, and Max Chatsko, our very newest advisor. We're going to be talking about leadership on this segment of the podcast because good decisions made by, made by management teams are often the key for companies producing long-term rewards for shareholders. And so we're each going to spotlight one company who's had a leadership team that's made those right decisions and have created excellent long-term returns for their investors. And Max, I think we'll start with you. We're going to put you trial by fire as this is your first podcast with the Seven Investing Team. But let's start with you. What is one company that you feel has some leadership that has done a really good job for shareholders in recent years? Yeah, so I went with Repligen. Um, and I really like, so I'm a shareholder, but I like how, you know, the leadership team there in the last decade has, uh, it's a good example of, you know, executing rather than just 
talking about what you're going to do or what the opportunities are. Because uh, in, in biotech, um, unfortunately, a lot of companies kind of do talk and then, you know, years go by and they never really deliver anything. So in, the, in like 2010, Replogen was still a development stage biopharmaceutical company. So it was developing drugs, just like, you know, hundreds of other companies out there. But uh, in 2011, it made an acquisition and it started to get into something called bioprocessing tools. So bioprocess engineering is it's what I have my undergrad in. So I'm near and dear to my heart, but uh, it's the tools that are required to make biologic drugs. So all the filters, all the purification columns, uh, other consumables and tubes that are used in the production of biologic drugs. So like monoclonal antibodies or gene therapies, uh, even CRISPR tools and therapeutics. Um, so back in you know 2011, when, when the management team saw this opportunity, I mean, it, it wasn't really as uh, <clears throat> you know, tangible as it is today necessarily so it took a lot of courage to say like hey guys we're going to pivot into this new thing called bioprocess engineering and we barely have any revenue in it today but just like hang on you know we see where this is going this could be a big opportunity so it eventually uh, outlicensed its drug assets that it was working on uh, monetized those somewhat and then it poured a bunch of money into just making really smart acquisitions um so over the years, it kind of just built up a bigger and bigger revenue base. Um, so by 2014, it had only $60 million in bioprocess engineering revenue. But if you fast forward to last year, uh, it made $270 million in revenue, uh, all from bioprocess products. That's all it does now. And this year, it's on pace. It's guidance anyway for full year 2020 is around like $340 million. And it has a goal to make uh, $500 to $600 million in revenue by 2023. So, um, you know, it's executed. It's, uh, it's even making like acquisitions now. And like, so recently, like it made an acquisition of a tiny company. It just makes uh, little plastic parts and it only has $8 million in annual revenue. So it's easy for investors to sit back and say like, well, what are you guys doing? You know, you're wasting your time or, what is $8 million going to do per year when you're making, you know, $340 million in revenue. Um, but again, like management sees, Hey, five, 10 years from now, um, with the, these products that this company makes are going to fit really well into the ecosystem of, of what is needed to make, to safely manufacture, uh, you know, cell therapies or gene therapies. Um, so th this company's molded plastic tool, like uh, tubing, you need it when you're manufacturing uh, biologic drugs because there's regulations around like you need no leak, it's called. So if you have all these parts that are interconnected, um, you know, there could be leaks, there could be contamination coming in. So uh, obviously that's unacceptable if you're trying to uh, manufacture biologic drugs. So again, it's $8 million revenue now, but I mean, five, 10 years later, and you throw it in with uh, the rest of Replogen's products and portfolio. So, um, I mean, there's a lot of, room for organic growth or, you know, applying the, the technology platform uh, to other products the company already sells. So, so yeah, I guess the takeaway is, you know, as much as it's fun for investors to uh, look at investor presentations and, you know, see all these 
fun graphics and projections. I mean, at the end of the day, what matters is if the company's actually delivering. So I think Repligen's uh, management team deserves a lot of credit for, you know, seeing the opportunity, but also just kind of putting it all together and, and certainly delivering for, uh, for investors. Uh, I mean, the stock's been up a few thousand percent in the last decade. So can't really argue with that. Yeah, I definitely can. And, and Max, it sounds like from everything you just described that Repligen's management made the decision to focus less on drug development, you know, a more niche kind of specific, maybe even overhyped at the time, uh, to made the decision to kind of go a little bit broader, picks and shovels play to focus on that bioprocess engineering, which is a much larger market where they had a lot of opportunity to expand. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, that's right. So they totally abandoned uh, developing a drug pipeline. And they said, hey, we're just going to make like help the whole industry manufacture drugs. So they don't have to pick individual winners. They can just kind of say, you know, eventually there's going to be dozens, hundreds, whatever uh, biologic drugs on the market. And we're going to help them all. And the company helps manufacture, um, you know, drugs and volumes required for clinical trials and also those that get approved. So you need larger volumes of the drugs. So uh, it's really built it out pretty, pretty intelligently. Perfect. Repligen, great company, Max. Uh, let's go over to Matt Cochran, our second seven investing advisor with the initials MC. Matt, who is your company that, you're, that you think has done a great job with leadership lately? Uh, I would like to take a look at uh, PayPal, which is a, a huge surprise for, for those that follow me, I'm sure. But uh, most specifically, like just PayPal's leadership's focus on the long term. Um, you know, after they were spun off from their, from eBay in 2015, uh, CEO Dan Schulman and the rest of its leadership team, uh, just made decision after decision based on what was best for the company's long-term prospects. Uh, you know, even if it meant foregoing quick and easy profits, uh, for the immediate future, I think there's two really good examples that, that point that out or that highlight that quality, uh, in early 2016, uh, for the first one. Uh, PayPal is being attacked by uh, MasterCard and Visa for their practices of pushing consumers to use their bank accounts to fund transfers and purchases uh, with ACH payments and not credit cards, even if the consumer wanted to pay for their credit card. And uh, like specifically, the, the Visa CEO at the time, Charlie Sharp, just came out and said, like, we're going to go after PayPal like never before if they continue these practices. And uh, but analysts were loving PayPal's stance. They thought it was a, a strong move by PayPal, um, but it, the practice wasn't consumer friendly. And the reason why PayPal was doing that, a bank, bank account transfers were much more profitable for PayPal than credit card transfers, but the practice wasn't consumer friendly. It didn't allow consumers to like easily choose how they wanted to fund purchases. And PayPal management realized it could benefit by playing nice with the other players in the payments industry and by letting consumers just have a choice, you know, giving consumers choice. So they relented uh, and they made choosing different ways for funding much easier for its users. And then a partnership with Ma MasterCard and Visa soon followed. And then uh, pretty soon they were making partnerships with everyone and they kind of positioned themselves as the Switzerland and the payment payments ecosystem. You know, they were a completely neutral payments platform that worked equally well on every device and operating system and could be used with, you know, all financial institutions and merchants. Uh, you know, they didn't have, and they didn't play any favorites and they just made everything consumer friendly, even when it meant less profitable transactions for themselves. And then the, I think that's a second time where it just really highlights their, their focus on the long-term and not short-term profits was uh, 
when they were monetizing uh, Venmo, as it was being rolled out for a payment option where uh, for merchants where PayPal was accepted as a method of payment. And, you know, I, I remember several conference calls, like management was just taking questions like, how soon are they going to monetize this? How quickly were they going to roll this out? I mean, Venmo was just gaining in popularity everywhere. And they just kept answering analysts like, hey, look, you know, we're, we're, we want to make sure the experience is right. We have a multi-year outlook on what we want this to be, and we're not going to rush it. And they didn't. And they Venmo grew into a huge platform, and they are monetizing it now. But by being patient and pushing off profits for uh, actually a few years, uh, you know, they just had, they had the long-term picture in mind. And I think in both these instances, uh, PayPal's leadership took a long-term mindset over concern for the next quarter when it came to growing its business. And so as is, and as is so often the case when a company's shareholder base and company leadership take that outlook, you know, both have been richly rewarded. Yeah, great examples there, Matt. And, you know, with PayPal, obviously a very consumer-focused company, like you just mentioned, has their strategy always been to make sure that consumers are happy and take care of them up front? And then they know that down the line, if enough people are using PayPal, they're going to make their bang for their buck by, by monetizing the, uh, the business merchant side of that. Is that a fair way to characterize PayPal? Yes. I, it took them a little bit after being spun off from eBay to get there. It, it might have taken them a good year. Uh, when they still had these practices of not allowing consumers to easily make choices when it was less profitable for PayPal and such. Uh, but, but pretty soon after being spun off from PayPal, uh, from eBay, I'm sorry, uh, they, they took that stance. And, and ever since, they've been consistent with that. Like, what's best for the consumer? What, let's just make our platform easy for the consumer. Let's just grow. And, you know, we don't have to worry about near-term profits right now. Absolutely. PayPal, obviously a very great company for investors as well. Uh, Austin Lieberman, who's the company that, that you think that has a leadership team that's done a fantastic job? So first of all, for anybody that was impressed by Max's credentials and his, his education, just be prepared to be underwhelmed by my criminal justice degree and uh, my lack of vocabulary. Uh, Max, happy to have you. Super pumped to have you on the team. I've always wanted to grow my vocabulary, so I think you're going to be great for that, as well as the types of companies that uh, we all look at, because uh, you bring a lot to the team that that none of us, none of the other, the rest of us are watching. So awesome to have you here. Um, so Simon, a little company that um, a lot of people that listen to this podcast have probably heard of, the Trade Desk. Um, you know. We wrote about these in in our perspective updates, which we provide to our paying subscribers. Quick thing on on leadership is, it's it's one way that I think that we as investors have a true advantage over a lot of these professional investors and firms that do all this, this crazy kind of high frequency trading and um, and and quantitative trading and running all these screens because you can't screen for leadership. It's not a, it's not a data point that you can put into a screen and, and screen for leadership. And at the same time, uh, there have been studies in HBR, which I linked to this in, in my update. So our subscribers have seen that. And if you're not a subscriber, check us out, seveninvesting.com forward slash subscribe. Um, and you'll get these as well as our updates. But I talked about it. Um, HBR did a review where they looked at uh, founder-led stocks, which a lot of what we have seen as in, who are known to be exceptional leaders, um, 
companies that are exceptionally led and have outperformed are founder led. If you think about Netflix, you have to think about Reed Hastings. If you think about Amazon, you have to think about Jeff Bezos. If you think about Tesla, even though I guess technically he's not the founder, he in for all intents and purposes, he's the founder, uh, Elon Musk. Um, so great leadership is important and it's really hard to quantify. So you have to dig in just like Max was talking about and, and listen to the way they present and the, the way they hold themselves. And, and that's how you find great leadership. And so Jeff Green has been somebody, the uh, co-founder and CEO of the Trade Desk that I've been just fascinated with. He's an amazing communicator. If, if you have a chance, uh, listen to any one of their conference calls. He starts every single one of them off with this just beautiful laid out story. And this most recent call is a perfect example. They actually recorded negative 12% year over year growth. And some way, somehow he made this out to sound like um, they've got nothing but a world of opportunity ahead of them, which I think they do. Uh, where the stock's trading at in terms of valuation right now and uh, and negative earnings that they just reported is 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 kind of crazy, but that doesn't take away from the uh, over a decade of outstanding leadership. So the, the things that come to mind when I think about Jeff Green is he's ambitious. Jeff Green and David Pickles founded the business in 2009 and they entered into a multi-hundred billion dollar global advertising business as two brand new founders that were competing with companies like Facebook and Google and um, all kinds of massive advertising companies. They were these, just this little advertising company that was getting started. They've grown their platform from uh, $1 million of spend on their platform in 2012 to more than $1 billion a quarter in 2019. And uh, they still think there's a lot of growth ahead with more than $725 billion in uh, global advertising spend up for grabs. Uh, Jeff Green's innovative. And I think, and, and these are three traits. So ambition, uh, innovation, these are, and I'm, I'm going to give you another one in a minute. These are three traits I think we can look for in great leaders. Uh, the trade desk recorded $308 million in revenue in 2017, which was up from 45 million just three years earlier in 2014. And it would have been easy at that point for um, any team or any CEO to think, you know, we're going to kind of continue with the status quo. But in 2018, Jeff Green and the team um, launched what's called the Next Wave. And this is basically their new platform of advertising tools that completely reimagined uh, their approach and really the programmatic advertising industry. And so from 2017 to 2019, they increased from 308 million to 661 million. So a, more than a double in revenue again in just two years. And that's pretty incredible. And then finally, uh, another great trait is uh, Jeff Green and, and good leaders are great listeners. So uh, this is the move that I think is the reason that the trade desk still has the valuation that it does is, is he moved for a year in 2018. He moved his family to live in China. And the reason he did that was because uh, he knew that the future of the business really is in China. At the time, 85% of the trade desk's revenue was from North America. And so there was people on his team and, and different people he talked to that kind of thought he was crazy for living in China when most of their revenue came from the United States. But he did that because he, he knew that in order to adapt their platform and grow internationally into that market, he had to truly understand uh, the culture and the way that they do business. And 
coming out of that, they have now partnerships with some of the biggest media companies in, in China, Baidu, um, Ichi, I, I don't know if I said that right or not, Tencent and Yoku, um, which gives it the company access to some of China's largest advertisers. And so as of August 21st, 2020, uh, they have, the trade desk has nearly a $22 billion market cap and the stocks returned more than 1,400% since it came public in 2016. And so real quick to recap on those three traits to look for in great leaders, uh, you want a leader that's ambitious, innovative, and a great listener. And um, Jeff Green is, is, I think he covers all three of those. Uh, I do not own shares of the trade desk anymore. I just earlier this month sold my, uh, my last piece of shares um, and, and bought some more of Etsy. I just can't wrap my mind around the current, I usually don't worry about valuation, but I can't wrap my head around the current valuation of the trade desk with negative 12% growth. So I'm taking a little pause on owning the company right now, but what they've done already is incredible. It sounds like the combination of those characteristics is Jeff Green has really just thought big, right? He always kind of saw, he, I know he has a background in digital advertising prior to the trade desk. Uh, he looked internationally. He knew he had to partner with some of the, the other companies that were in China and elsewhere. Do you think the trade desk has still got plenty of opportunity for him to think big and be innovative and ambitious and listen to his customers? Yeah, definitely. And, and I, I have mixed feelings about selling shares of this great company. It's, we talk about this, like that's usually the way you end up with your biggest losses in investing is by selling companies that end up doing incredible. Um, they, again, they have a, a pretty high valuation right now, but when we think about the, the revenue that they, they brought in, which again was around, uh, $600 million in 2019 compared to it's like $780 billion of global advertising spend. They have a fractional piece of, of that pie and Jeff Green and, and the team is, is really playing the long game. And, and I don't think he cares, you know, what the stock does in the short term. He's making decisions for the next decade plus. Lieberman. And, and Steve, how about you? What's the company that's on that you think has had a leadership team that's done a fantastic job lately? Well, uh, it's funny because I'll end up unwittingly echoing a lot of the, the characteristics that we've talked about so far. Um, but uh, Shantanu Narayan uh, at Adobe uh, in particular stood out uh, as we were thinking about leadership. And uh, he, uh, he joined Adobe in, in like 1998, he was a VP general manager of their engineering technology group. Uh, then he was their chief operating officer a few years later, and then he became CEO in 2007. So he's been CEO for like 13 years. But uh, the stock, incidentally, is up, I think, more than 1,600% over the past decade. And I think in large part, it's because of the vision uh, that he has uh, basically um, instituted. Uh, and, you know, he's also fostered a culture uh, that has uh, really resonated uh, with the employees, uh, its values, the culture of the company. Uh, but he was smart enough and had the perspective to recognize that Adobe's business was being threatened, their bread and butter model. Uh, remember uh, back in the day when a, a copy of uh, Photoshop cost 650 bucks. You had to buy it every couple of years to stay up to date. And, uh, you know, he recognized that, you know, with mobile computing uh, and you know, cloud computing uh, kind of coming up 
uh, and digital downloads that uh, that was being threatened. And he had the vision to essentially in 2012 start shifting Adobe's business from that perpetual license model over to a recurring cloud-based subscription model. And it was really one of the, the first big companies to really embrace that. And, uh, and I think that, uh, that is largely why Adobe has performed so well uh, with their early embrace of that model. And uh, I mean, now you look at a business with, I think it's over 9 billion in uh, annualized recurring revenue. I think they added like 440 some million dollars in recurring revenue to their digital media segment last quarter alone. Um, so it's incredible the momentum they have. Their gross margins are expanding, um, really just help the company survive and thrive. And uh, it, it's been incredible to watch. And the funny thing is um, he, he ignored, um, didn't completely ignore, but adequately addressed investors' concerns on the effect uh, that it had with revenue. We've seen that with a lot of our seven investing recommendations um, where you're transitioning. Uh, you have businesses in transition away from, say, a perpetual license model and toward a recurring revenue model, which tends to come with um, different revenue recognition uh, requirements. So uh, you have uh, contracts that are recognized ratably over the course of an entire year rather than big chunks of revenue. So it does uh, over in time, once that uh, transition completes results in more predictable revenue streams and uh, a more predictable business, but it does generally come uh, when you're in that transition at the expense of top line growth in the near term. So that's something they sort of had to combat along the way is say, Hey, be patient with us. Uh, this transition will take time, but it'll be worth it. And uh, it, it was really um, neat uh, for me as an analyst to watch that kind of unfold over the last decade or so and watch Adobe uh, basically foster its recurring revenue streams. Um, and really, I mean, no coincidence, you know, you, you look at him, he's consistently in the top 10 highest rated CEOs by his employees and, you know, the business community alike. Um, you know, whether you look at Glassdoor or wherever you're looking, he's, he's well-liked and, uh, and, and he just really an effective leader. And I think that that trickles down. So and it seems like Adobe, Steve, has still got the same products out there that it's had for decades, right? You, you mentioned Photoshop and Premiere. They're still the same basic mm -hmm. things that people are looking to use. It's just that they've changed the way that those are delivered from more of that upfront pricing all at once to that recurring revenue cloud-based model. Yeah, it so a lot like they, of- They did that so well, right? A lot of those are, are the same, but they also kind of doubled down on innovation. So they made their products better. They made them more effective. They've made a ton of acquisitions too over the last decade or so. Um, now I think three marketing agencies are marketing kind of software products um, that they acquired over the last few years to basically have this- sort of dip into the commerce marketing side of things and make themselves more of like a one-stop shop for digital creators. So they've expanded their products while maintaining their sort of core revenue streams and making their existing products better. So um, really, you know, fostering innovation. I think uh, there's one quote in an interview uh, with Investors Business Daily last year. He said, preserving the status quo is not a winning business st strategy. Uh, and he basically said that's really a belief that's driven a lot of the decisions they've made uh, at Adobe under his tenure. So uh, they're not interested in kind of preserving what was there. They want to know uh, where the world's going and they'll embrace it. So um, I think they'll continue to outperform, really. Go where the hockey puck is going. That's a good saying there, for definitely for sure, for, for Adobe. Mm -hmm. And I'll bring this home with my company, which is Ubiquity Networks, uh, which is a company founded 
by a gentleman named Robert Para back in 2005. Uh, Para came from Apple. He was an engineer there. And he envisioned a world where everything was going to be connected to um, wireless internet. And back in 2005, that was a kind of a radical visionary idea, but he founds Ubiquity Networks to do this. And so Ubiquity goes on, they create all of the, the hardware devices to help other devices to connect to the internet. These are things like switches and routers and radios that went on to kind of help smartphones get connected and more recently help other devices, uh, wearable devices, sensors, things from the internet of things to also get connected to the internet as well. And you've got to keep in mind that back in 2005, when he's, when he's starting Ubiquity, uh, wireless is not the big deal that it is today. You know, most of his competitors like Cisco, these other hardware companies, were fighting tooth and nail to get the most lucrative enterprise companies and customers internet connected, right? They would go after, they'd fight for contracts. They'd go after the highest paying bids that they could get. They'd have a direct sales force shaking hands with everybody. And Ubiquity under Para had a completely different strategy, a disruptive strategy, at least by textbook disruption, where he was going to go after underserved customers that weren't being um, attended to by those larger companies. And so Ubiquity goes after libraries and universities and small sporting venues and, you know, places where there were groups of people, but they weren't getting the attention of those larger providers for wireless connectivity and especially in international markets where it was even less uh, attention being paid to them. And so what does Ubiquity do? It does, a, it, it does a fantastic job of cutting out the sales middlemen. Rather than having direct sales force call on all of these, they basically just embrace the internet as a way for these smaller customers to speak directly with Ubiquity's R&D engineers to, to devise the products that they needed to have. And so Ubiquity put all of that sales spend, the SGNA spend directly into R&D, and as you might expect over time, its products become technically superior because it's putting all the money into research and development that everyone else is putting into sales. And so it's not too long that those technically superior products, the word gets around, the enterprise cus uh, customers come along and start working with Ubiquity. And this is a company that even as an enterprise hardware provider for wireless connectivity is routinely been making 35% operating margins over the past decade. The stock went public in 2011. It's a 10 bagger of the last decade since then. And on top of all of that, Robert Perra has maintained almost a 90% ownership stake in his company, nine zero that is, uh, which means that there's a very small percentage of outstanding shares that are publicly available Anytime the stock price dips, he has an aggressive stock repurchase plan. Uh, so he just buys back and makes his stake even larger. So it's a great combination of, in my opinion, a company that has a disruptive, visionary leader who has a very high ownership stake. It's hard to bet against a company with those kind of, of traits. Simon, so you got to ask us all follow-up questions. How do you feel about that 90%? I like founders that own a lot of the company, but I don't, I don't know of many 90% owners. How do you feel about that? It's very rare, Austin. It, it, there's very few com publicly traded companies I could mention that have 90% ownership stakes like that. For me, with this guy, with the vision that he had, that he's a, a founder of the company, he saw the internet of things happening 10 years before anybody else was talking about it. I'm comfortable with something like that. And he's done the right things for shareholders the entire way. Para kind of cracks me up too. Risk, though. He, he cracks me up because uh, he's, he's kind of got this engineer's heart, right? Where he just, he prefers to just put his head down and work. And, you know, he doesn't really hold conference calls with analysts. And I think the last time he did it might've been when that short seller tried to bet against him. 
and it sort of backfired. And uh, he did hold a call after that to kind of address the situation and talk to analysts. But he's kind of like, just let us do our thing and crush everybody. And, uh, and, and he does, but um, he's, he's kind of funny that way uh, that he doesn't really like to talk to analysts, but you know, for people are willing to dig through the numbers. It's kind of fun. That's very true. And to wrap up today's podcast, I thought we'd have a little bit of fun. We've played this game before. We're going to play a game called bullish or bearish with each one of the advisors. Um, I'm going to select a topic and a question for them. If they are bullish on that idea, then they would say bullish. They they think that's going to continue in the future. If they're bearish, they think it's not going to happen. Um, and again, these are not stocks. These are concepts that we're going to, I'm going to pitch to each one of them. And they have not seen this list in advance, so I'm totally putting them on the spot for your entertainment and amusement. Um, Austin, I'm going to start with you because you've been talking quite a bit about the space economy in the recent uh, past couple of months. And according to the U.S. Census Bureau of last year, fourth quarter of 2019, um, they asked the American consumers, American households, what types of internet they had available for them. 86% of people that had internet, high-speed internet, were using ethernet or wired internet. Uh, 87% had some type of mobile data plan, but only 4% said that they actually had satellite-delivered internet. Are you bullish or bearish that satellite internet will reach 10% of American consumers within the next five years? Bullish. Uh, With the speed of the internet, I just pulled up. um, So I'm a huge fan of a company called Fastly. They produced this report called Behind the Screens in 2019. And as of December 9th, 2019, uh, this, this is happening. I mean, SpaceX launched 60 low Earth orbit satellites to provide high speed broadband internet as part of the world that had never had access to it. And they plan to launch another 40,000 in the coming years. Other companies, OneWeb, Telesat, Amazon, and Facebook have also thrown their hats into the LEO satellites. So bullish, um, it's just becoming more and more popular. And I think that's, that's a way we're going to get more high speed access to more people, not Absolutely. just in the US, but throughout, throughout the world. Bullish on high-speed internet being delivered by satellites. Excellent. Okay, Max, I'm going to come to you because, you know, as our newest advisor, you've been talking a lot about gene editing and living technologies in recent weeks. Um, Recently in Florida, where we have two of our advisors residing right now, it was approved to use genetically modified mosquitoes uh, starting in January of 2021. A company called Oxitec was uh, uh, going to be genetically modifying male mosquito eggs They'll be unleashed now to uh, basically rid surrounding areas of other mosquitoes. Max, this is controversial. This is something that a lot of people are talking about, but it's not being done anywhere else in the United States. Are you bullish or bearish on this reaching other states in the next couple of years? Well, I think it's actually uh, coming to Texas, which is where you live. So uh, I wouldn't want to throw too much shade on Florida just yet. Um, yeah, I think it'll probably go to most of the Gulf states uh, within the next few years. I'm pretty, pretty bullish about that. Um, it just seems to be the lowest cost way to, well, actually, it just seems to be the most efficient way on paper to uh, control mosquito populations. I mean, the alternative is spraying pesticides. Um, so yeah, there's, they did it. So that company Oxitec, they had some pilot programs down in Brazil a few years ago and the costs were pretty high. I think that was actually a, their first generation technology. So I think they've improved on it since then. But yeah, I mean, everything in biology and living technologies always comes down to cost. So um, 
you know, if we see the numbers and they work, uh, then yeah, I'm pretty bullish on it. But I mean, you know, it's a very targeted way to just control mosquitoes and nothing else. So yeah, it's coming to Texas. Get ready. I'm a big fan of that. Anything that gets rid of the mosquitoes in our backyard here in Texas, I'm a big fan of and I'm bullish of as well. Uh, Matt, I'm going to come to you next. Big tech was recently uh, brought in front of Congress. You know, the leaders of the largest tech companies were basically defending themselves in a more than six-hour hearing in late July about anti-competitive data hoarding, uh, which is a big controversial topic right now. One of the companies that was on the stand was Facebook. And Mark Zuckerberg took quite a few questions because it seems like Facebook has been under the gun more than any uh, as far as being scrutinized in these congressional hearings. Do you believe or do you not believe that regulations will result in a significant change to Facebook's operations during the next five years? Wow, that's a hard question. Uh, There's so many unknowns with elections and things like that. Uh, That being said, I would say uh, I'm bearish on that idea. I don't think regulations will significantly impact Facebook's business model. Now, will will there be fines? Yes. And that's not just for Facebook, but probably some of its uh, big tech uh, peers as well. But uh, I I don't believe that there will be big changes that will come that will directly impact its business model. There might be changes around the edges. Uh, I'm not saying there won't be any laws passed or anything like that. Uh, but but something that like really just completely disrupts its business model? No, I'm bearish on that idea. You know, the other thing too, Simon, is like uh, these regulations, they, ha- they have a chance to actually make these big tech companies positioning stronger because it'll, it's harder for a lot smaller companies to compete with that and to comply with regulations right, off, right out of the gate. Uh, you know, where the big tech companies, like where, where it might hurt their margins and things like that, if it strengthens their competitive positioning, it actually, it actually might help them. So, uh, but I'm, I'm generally bearish on the idea that wholesale changes are coming to the industry. Okay, great. Uh, thanks, Matt. And Steve, I'm going to close this out with you here. Um, slightly modified bullish and bearish, but still a good question, I think, nonetheless. You've talked quite a bit about robotics, AI, and automation. Uh, We've seen this catch on in the enterprise. Amazon is using Kiva Robotics all over its warehouses right now. We've seen AI taking place in everything from data centers to enterprises to uh, gene modification technologies. It's it's used all over the place for larger businesses. And it seems like it's starting to catch on with the consumer world as well. One company you've covered quite a bit is iRobot, who has sold more than 30 million uh, robotic vacuums and mops since they were founded in 2002 to the consumer market. My question for you is, Steve, what's the next big consumer task that's going to be automated? Next big consumer task that's going to be automated. Um, well, iRobot uh, has that lawnmower that they put on hold uh, kind of because of the pandemic, but that's sort of the next thing in the pipeline. You know, commercialization's ready. It's about scale. Uh, at this point, and uh, they had some beta tests that were going on. They sort of just kind of said, you know what, we're going to hunker down until this all passes. Probably not the best time to launch a a high-end consumer product, but um, there's been a lot of other things. You know, they've they've talked about uh, automating, you know, laundry folding, bathroom cleaning, uh, those kinds of things. But uh, uh, there are robotic lawnmowers out there, but they're kind of pain, you know, pain to set up. You got to put in underground fences and everything like that. But uh, I think I think that's going to be kind of the next one that you see because you know who do you know that has a robotic lawnmower? Um, who do you know that has a uh, you know, 
Roomba. So what about exercising? Could could they automate exercising? <laughs> just just sit there and, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that seems to be uh, something that would be counterproductive with in the world of robotics. But uh, yeah, I I mean I I'd say lawn mowing is a, a pretty safe bet, but it'll probably be another another couple of years before you see it kind of uh, expanding in earnest. So we'll Brilliant. we'll go there. I I asked Twitter for a question that we could ask you, and it was short notice. And I got a question from Gordon's Gecko. Would you rather fight 100 duck-sized horses or one horse-sized duck? Not going to ask you that question, but I came up with one on the fly. Uh, SPACs, direct listings, or IPOs? Which which one are you bullish on and which one are you bearish on? I'm, I'm a fan of the direct listing of those three options. Uh, you know, so what Austin's referring to, SPACs, special purpose acquisition company. I believe I'm saying that correctly. Forgive me if I've got the acronym incorrect on the spot, but it's basically working with deal makers where you can raise money from investors upfront and then merge with a private operating company. Uh, that's something that we've seen quite a bit recently. DraftKings just did it. Uh, Hostess did it. You know, Twinkies Maker, you know, has, has gone public via SPAC. It's kind of a unique way to do it. The IPO listing has got its limitations too. Uh, that's where basically companies are leaving a lot of money on the table because they uh, have underwriters that fund their upfront price that they sell shares for. And then those are released to the market at a much higher price. So there's a lot of money in the table there that doesn't go to those companies and also doesn't uh, kind of influence the price that public investors can get in at. But the direct listing, you know, that's something that we've seen recently too. A lot of companies, tech companies especially, are just listing their shares directly without hiring the underwriters. There's a lot less uh, guarantee of them raising a certain amount of money because there's no security net underneath them for that. Uh, but I do think that if I was to pick one of those three, that'd be the one that I'd, I'd vote on. And I'd also pick the, uh, the giant duck and the other question. Uh, so pulling everything together, I, it sounds like keep, keep an eye on Facebook. There's not going to be a whole lot of changes from regulations, perhaps from that. Uh, we do like seeing mosquitoes that are an alternative to chemical sprays in Florida and Texas. Uh, we will keep an eye out for satellite internet because we think that could be picking up across the United States and watch for robots to, to automate all those things you don't want to do around the house, including mowing the yard. And the companies that we mentioned earlier in the program, Repligen, PayPal, the Trade Desk, Adobe, and Ubiquity Networks. Uh, once again, I hope that everyone enjoys our seven investing podcast. We're really excited to be working with Max. If you do like our podcast, please leave us a review or a rating or any feedback. And if you have specific questions for our team, please send them to info at seveninvesting.com or at seveninvesting on Twitter. We thank everyone for listening and tuning into this week's episode. We are here to empower you to invest in your future. We are seven investing. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. And before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult with a financial or tax professional.